This is The Weekly for Friday, June 14th. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Democracies are becoming more polarized, intolerant, and dysfunctional. That is the perspective of author Larry Diamond in his new book, Ill Wins, Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition, and American Complacency. He is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution in Palo Alto, California, and a professor of political science and sociology at Stanford University. Our conversation examines the challenges facing some of our closest allies and fiercest enemies, But we begin with what we're facing here at home as the political parties in the United States become more fractured, the media more partisan, and the political climate more toxic. So let me begin with the title of the book. It's rather sobering. Yeah, ill winds. It doesn't sugarcoat things. Uh, There are ill winds blowing against freedom in the world, and if we don't recognize them, we're in danger of succumbing to them. From your standpoint, how bad is it? Well, uh, it's not a crisis like the 1930s. We're not staring a fascist movement like the Nazis or Mussolini's brown shirts in the face. But there is a rising tide of uh, illiberal and, I think, authoritarian sentiment and governance in the world. We are losing democracies. We've, We've had a member state of the European Union, Hungary, Uh, descend from uh, liberal democracy to illiberal democracy and then to non-democracy, even though Viktor Orban won't admit that. And we've had democracy recede in big and important countries like Turkey uh, as well, uh, Bangladesh, uh, uh, very large countries in the world. We had earlier seen democracy meet its demise in Russia and Venezuela. And uh, people are wondering now whether democracy is the best form of government and whether the established democracies of the world are going to practice it faithfully. And we should point out, you defend democracy. You simply state it's under peril. That's right. I do believe that democracy is the best form of government and that it's strongly in the interest of the United States to have a more democratic world. Uh, If you look at who our adversaries are in the world, they're all authoritarian regimes like Russia, uh, China, Iran, Venezuela, North Korea. If you look at the failing states of the world, uh, they're all authoritarian regimes. If you look at where famines happen, and massive human rights emergencies, they're all authoritarian states. We don't have to intervene militarily or for humanitarian reasons in democracies. If we had more democracies in the world, we would have a world that is more secure, more stable, more stable, and more favorable to the American interest. I want to talk about the United States, but let me quickly ask you about Great Britain, because you have the prime minister who will be out next month, mm-hmm. the debate over Brexit, and really some parallels in terms of British politics and what we're seeing here in the United States. I think the parallels are striking, uh, not only between the U.S. and Britain, but with much of continental Europe as well. And if you look at who is supporting the illiberal populist reaction against the political establishment, which is Brexit in Britain and possibly the next prime minister, if it's Boris Johnson, 
uh, and who has supported Donald Trump and who is supporting Marine Le Pen in France. They're similar kinds of voters. They come from uh, uh, the more rural areas. They tend to be older voters. Uh, often they're less educated, though many educated people also support them. And they feel that they are looked down upon by a liberal, cosmopolitan, urban, highly educated knowledge elite that often has contempt for people who aren't like them. And this is actually a global cleavage that's emerging, a kind of global trend. And I think that uh, cosmopolitan, multicultural elites need to take notice of this and maybe reevaluate some of their own assumptions and practices. So, Larry Diamond, let me begin where the book begins as you kind of frame the debate of where we're at. And you paint a picture two days before the 2016 election. A group of Stanford students attend It Can't Happen Here. Why is that the starting point? And explain this production. Well, It Can't Happen Here, of course, was a novel by Sinclair Lewis about a uh, authoritarian personality, a political demagogue, who snatches the 1936 uh, Democratic presidential nomination away from Franklin Delano Roosevelt, gets elected and establishes a dictatorship in the United States. Now, of course, it uh, was a work of uh, great and improbable fiction. But the point is to see this reproduced on stage at a time when there was a possibility that a very illiberal and I think demagogic uh, candidate uh, for president of the United States, who had shown a lot of contempt for democracy as a principle of government and for uh, many democratic and pluralistic traditions in the United States, such as uh, not encouraging your opponents to engage in violence against uh, their, uh, their opponents, uh, not encouraging your supporters to engage in violence against your opposition, uh, this was um, this was alarming. The whole tone of his campaign, not so much what he, you know, this particular policy positions. You can debate: should we have higher taxes or lower taxes? You can debate: should we slow immigration into the United States or not? But contempt for the norms and procedures of democracy, raising doubts about the honesty of the election without having any evidence to do so, and inviting a foreign power to come in and help you in your campaign by releasing uh, digital data, if they have it, about your uh, opponent. These were things that were virtually without precedent in terms of a major party candidate for president. And so uh, there was a feeling of nervousness and, and worry about the future of American democracy. And you did not think Donald Trump was going to win, did you? No, I didn't. And uh, I was in, uh, you know, uh, popular company in terms of most political scientists in the United States. So I want to go back to his campaign in 2016 because he is now launching his 2020 campaign, mm -hmm. a rally in Orlando, Florida. What's his message to voters and what do voters need to consider based on your book? Well, uh, I'm, it's not clear to me what his message will be in 2020. I think he's got multiple messages. If he were smart, his message would be, look what I did for the economy and reelect me because the economy is doing pretty well. But he's such a divisive figure, he can't stand on that alone. And so he's constantly diluting 
a possible persuasive message for him by picking on the personalities of Democrats in a juvenile and, I think, uh, unseemly way, uh, continuing the practice of giving these uh, ridiculous uh, infantile names to his opponents, uh, Sleepy Joe, Nervous Nancy, all of this silly stuff, and uh, engaging in internecine and gratuitous partisan political conflict uh, where it isn't necessary, where we could be looking for bipartisan approaches on potentially immigration, infrastructure, and so on. And uh, I think he'll have to decide what his message is, is going to be. Is it going to be about um, economic progress and maybe uh, a slower approach on immigration, but in a way that is not so socially divisive? Or is it going to be about dividing the American public, uh, mobilizing his hardest core supporters in anger rather than, than in hope, and hoping that he can prevail uh, with a narrow victory again in the Electoral College? Let me remind our listeners we are talking with author and Professor Larry Diamond. His book is titled Ill Wins, Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition, and American complacency. So is Donald Trump the leader of this change, or is he a product of our times? Well, I think he, like other illiberal uh, political voices and elected officials uh, in prominent democracies around the world, is both a reflection of a time of stress and bracing and disruptive social change and then he's also an accelerator of a lot of these processes and a lot of the very deep and crippling uh, polarization, which, uh, as you know, Steve, you cover American politics, is really degrading the functionality of our democracy and the ability of our Congress to get anything done. Um, he reflects the concern, as I said, of a lot of voters from the heartland of America who are not part of the knowledge elite and who feel that Hollywood and New York and what they probably call limousine liberals look down upon them and uh, have more sympathy for uh, foreigners than for Americans. I don't think that's true, but I can understand how some of them uh, have that reaction. And I think that the answer, uh, in part, for the other side, for the Democratic Party, has to be, I think it's a lesson of the 2016 election and of the 2016 primary election among the Republicans, you, you aren't effective in countering now President Trump as a candidate if you try and get down in the mud with him and play this uh, schoolyard game of uh, uh, invective and uh, uncivil uh, and bullying uh, rhetorical behavior. Uh, he has to be challenged on the issues, on performance, and I think he can be challenged on the question of uh, both the dignity of the office and the fidelity to democratic principles. I don't think one is being faithful as a president or a presidential candidate to democratic principles uh, when he says, yes, I'd welcome foreign interference in the election if I think it'll help me. And I, I mentioned the book is sobering. This is just one example. You wrote that for the past decade, I have been warning of a gathering tide of political corruption, 
polarization and a decay that has diminished and destabilized previously durable democratic systems. Right. Well, just look at the uh, record. Um, We now have the first instance since the creation of the European Union in which a European Union member state has ceased to be a democracy, Hungary. We have a rising tide of drift away from democracy in an even larger European member state, Poland. We have a member of NATO, in fact, the uh, uh, member of NATO on the eastern side of the Atlantic with the largest army, uh, Turkey, that has long since become a harshly authoritarian state. And we're seeing a rising tide of anti-immigrant, illiberal political sentiment in many other European Union democracies. Uh, And I think these trends are worrisome at the same time as I say that Russian and Chinese interference and global reach and power and propaganda are ramping up uh, and filling the vacuum left by the retreat of American leadership in the world, and at the same time as other big and important democracies like India and the Philippines are moving in a very illiberal, if not in the case of the Philippines, I fear, undemocratic direction. And at the same time, having had the chance to hear you speak uh, at Stanford at the Hoover Institution, one of my takeaways from your conversation with reporters is that China gets this. They're in for the long game. They're planning 10, 15, 20, 50 years down the road. The United States is not. Well, uh, we are retreating from the world, and they are filling the space. They are filling it militarily in Asia, where they want to push the U.S. out of uh, the Western Pacific and become the dominant power in all of Asia. They get it technologically. They've spent 30 years uh, stealing our high technology, and now they are engaged in a very rapid military modernization and buildup. At the same time, they are innovating now in a lot of the technologies of the future, such as uh, zero carbon emission uh, electric cars. And as Tom Friedman has written uh, in a recent column, if we don't resume that competition for the future of the world economy, we will become a second-rate economic power. And if you're not on the cutting edge of fighting climate change, both for our own national security and well-being and for our economic leadership in the world, you don't see the direction in which the world economy is headed. And oh, by the way, then there's Russia, as you describe it in your book of Vladimir Putin and Russia being really a geopolitical bully. Right. They're returning to their earlier role under the Soviet Union. Now, it's shorn of the communist ideology, but it's still got um, the desire for control and for domination uh, and for intimidation. And even look at what Russia did to retake Crimea by force, even military conquest. And you look at the Russian military maneuvers uh, challenging the United States and nearly physically uh, at sea colliding with the United States. And I think this is a metaphor for what Russia is becoming under Vladimir Putin now. Europe is threatened again, not only geopolitically, by Russian money pouring into support of these right-wing nativist parties like the National Front in France. It's threatened militarily uh, by the 
resurgence of Russian military and corrupting economic power. I'm curious to get your reaction. This is what President Trump told ABC News this week. Your campaign this time around, if foreigners, if Russia, if China, if someone else offers you information on an opponent, should they accept it or should they call the FBI? I think maybe you do both. I think you might want to listen. I don't, there's nothing wrong with listening. If somebody called from a country, Norway, we have information on your opponent. Oh, I think I'd want to hear it. You want that kind of interference in our elections? It's not an interference. They have information. I think I'd take it. If I thought there was something wrong, I'd go maybe to the FBI if I thought there was something wrong. But when somebody comes up with oppo research, right, they come up with oppo research, Oh, let's call the FBI. The FBI doesn't have enough agents to take care of it. But you go and talk honestly to congressmen. They all do it. They always have. And that's the way it is. It's called oppo research. President Trump in the Oval Office with ABC's George Stephanopoulos and Larry Diamond. You're shaking your head no. I mean, what can one say? He said, if there's something wrong, I'll go to the FBI. There's something wrong with an American candidate for public office being willing to even consider getting opposition research or foreign assistance uh, from a foreign power. And I actually agree with what Lindsey Graham said uh, in response uh, uh, this morning. Uh, we need legislation to just make it clear this is not permitted. Uh, and any candidate who is approached by a foreign actor uh, offering to lend assistance of any material kind to a campaign should be required by federal law to report it to the FBI. For you personally, where do you come down ideologically? How do you describe your politics? I think of myself as um, moderately left of center, um, and I think that uh, it has been a invigorating experience to work at a think tank uh, that leans, frankly, I'd say to the right of center, because we need to question our assumptions. And we need to understand there are good ideas that are laying outside maybe our natural ideological inclinations. And progress for the United States of America is not always going to come with one decisive view or another. It's not only always going to be possible from one partisan point of view or another. A lot of the best policies, a lot of the most viable uh, policies, and a lot of the most plausible forms of reinvigoration of the American economy are going to be synthetic. They're going to draw ideas from different points of view and build coalitions from the center out. And that's what I favor in terms of governing, and that's what we used to do, coalitions from the center out. Another takeaway from my book, uh, which is a, is a deep read. I mean, there's a lot here for the viewers and the listeners to take away from. But our allies are deeply worried about the U.S. right now, from your standpoint. I'd say they are deeply worried, and some of them are privately alarmed um, at the retreat of the United States from global leadership uh, in confronting Russia's uh, aggression in uh, standing up to Chinese intimidation, although I hear I give the Trump administration, as you know, credit for taking a more vigorous approach than previous administrations have. And they're worried about America just becoming so entangled in its own internal bitterness and polarization 
that it's not able to represent either a model of a democracy worth emulating or a leadership role in trying to defend and advance freedom in the world. And I think our allies in Europe and East Asia in particular know that the United States remains, as Madeleine Albright said when she was Secretary of State, the indispensable nation. If we don't lead, no one else is going to. Certainly not in a democratic direction. And yet that strain of America first, and we heard that in 2016, making America great again, that strain has been throughout our history. Well, there's nothing wrong with and there's nothing new about the idea of always considering first, how's this going to affect the national security and economic and social well-being of the American people? Every president does that. When you say the words... America first. It resonates throughout history, as you said, in a particular way. And most people around the world hear that as America alone and America demanding exclusive uh, uh, cooperation with its own agenda and an unwillingness to listen to anyone else's agenda. And that is a posture that the rest of the world is not going to sign on to. It's not in our national interest to articulate it that way. Let me ask you about one event in our history, our recent history. You spent some time in Baghdad back in 2004. How big of a mistake was the war in Iraq, not only to the U.S. and to the Bush administration, but also to our allies and to our enemies? I I think it was a mistake of colossal and epic proportions. Epic. Epic. Um, I do not... I never question George W. Bush's motives. I don't think he was there after conquest or oil or anything like that. I think George W. Bush was a decent and principled man uh, who believed deeply in uh, uh, protecting America. I think he thought that's what he was doing there and in spreading freedom and democracy around the world. But it was very ill-considered. It was very uh, underprepared. It wasn't necessary. And what people around the world, particularly in Europe and the United States, took away from that was the idea that the United States was trying to promote democracy or impose democracy by force. And this had the effect of undermining the legitimacy of subsequent American efforts to support and spread democracy and freedom by the normal means we do so that are peaceful, transparent, uh, technical, uh, financial support to democratic organizations abroad. So I think it was very, very costly, not to mention the enormous costs uh, in human lives of Americans and Iraqis and the huge ongoing costs to our treasury of this war that was a war of choice and not necessity. Chapter two of the book, you pose this question based on what you just said a moment ago, quote, what makes for a stable democracy? How do you answer that? Well, you know, political scientists have a battery of uh, factors that they think make a difference. A high level of economic development, uh, a large middle class, high levels of education. It helps to be in a good neighborhood surrounded by other democracies. But in the end, the most important factor in sustaining a vibrant democracy is a commitment on the part of first the politicians 
and important political actors and parties, and second of all, the people, to constitutional democracy, to its principles and also its constraints. And a democracy that has that in a vital and enduring way can weather a lot of economic crisis and adversity. A democracy that has lost that or failed to develop it is at the tender mercies of any, I must say, demagogue or illiberal force that comes along that wants to uh, concentrate and abuse political power. And yet, why is it that whether it's Great Britain and Brexit in the European Union or President Trump, very critical of NATO, although he says we need to stay in NATO, why are these institutions, the United Nations, under fire? Why are they under such tight scrutiny? Where are we today that's changed over the last 60 to 70 years? Well, uh, you have to separate the different institutions. The UN has always been a subject of... uh, perhaps greater hope than realization. Uh, But it has made contributions to world peace. It's also been a forum for, um, you know, ideological posturing and bandwagoning with authoritarian regimes in the General Assembly and so on, uh, leading to, I think, very unfair votes in condemning Israel unilaterally. Um, And so it's... We, we have a catalog of reasons why many Americans are critical of the UN. I think they need to see the broader picture, but I understand why. In the case of the European Union, I think many Europeans uh, feel about Brussels the way many Americans who fo- voted for Donald Trump feel about Washington. They feel that it's broken in terms of listening to the people. They feel that the bureaucracy has become very distant and contemptuous of ordinary people. They feel like they've lost political voice and influence. They feel like they're being lectured to morally and in the regulatory framework by a condescending Uh, political and knowledge elite, and they're striking back, and they're resentful. Now, only in Britain are they seeking to withdraw from the European Union. Uh, In the continental Europe, I think they've definitely been sobered by the uh, uh, messing up of Brexit uh, by those who uh, tried to implement it. But elsewhere in continental Europe, there's still a lot of skepticism about the way Uh, that the European Union is governed and the micromanagement and the kind of condescending uh, and intense pace of regulation. And I think the lesson of these recent elections, the Brexit election, the election of President Trump, uh, the rising support for Marine Le Pen in France and others is, you know, if you're on the progressive side of the spectrum, you ought to have your ear a little closer to the ground in terms of um, frustrations and anxieties of fellow citizens who feel threatened uh, by the rapid pace of immigration, who feel displaced by globalization, who feel like they can't compete in this world of globalization. And I think the answer is not America first as America, you know, alone or America superior to everybody. And the answer is not trade wars and a complete secession of immigration or a demonization of foreigners, but it has to be sensitivity 
to the concerns of people who feel like they're falling behind, people who feel like they're losing in status, and people who feel like their voice is being lost. And I think there are ways that progressives can do that without abandoning their values. So complete this sentence. After readers complete your book, Ill Winds, they will... I hope become active in the exciting and uh, accelerating efforts across many states in the United States to reform and improve American democracy, to end gerrymandering, to fight voter suppression, to uh, adopt new laws for transparency and governance and uh, more democratic campaign finance, to reform our electoral system with compromise-inducing innovations like ranked choice voting, and whatever their politics, to get involved in electoral politics and have their voice be heard. So it sounds like you're more of a glass half full versus half empty. Oh, I'm actually much more optimistic than I think anyone would grasp by the title of the book. I think if you look around at the stirrings on the ground politically in many states in the United States, I believe we're entering now a new progressive era in the United States like that in the early 20th century. And what happened in the early 20th century? We got women the right to, to vote. We got direct election of U.S. senators. We got the initiative in the referendum in 24 states. And we created a number of very important regulatory institutions to monitor our economy and make it work more fairly and transparently. So for me, I get to page 283. I'm about done with the book. And then uh -huh. I go to the conclusion. And you begin with the Frank Capra movie of 1946. It's yeah. a Wonderful Life. So explain why you conclude on that note. Well, I think It's a Wonderful Life is one of the most wonderful movies ever made in America. And keep in mind, the character played by Jimmy Stewart uh, is more despairing at an early point in that film uh, than I think anyone would be even about our politics now. Do you shed a tear at the end? Of course I do. But I also remember that when that angel descended on Jimmy Stewart as he was about to jump from the bridge and said, here's what your what life would be like. Here's what the world would be like without you if you jump now. Um, uh, and he realized how much he was needed in the world. That's my point uh, in the final chapter, that the world needs America now. And we're being shown, I think at the moment, what the world would be like without American leadership. And it's not a world I think we should want to live in. What surprised you the most in researching this book? Uh, frankly, how far along China is in displacing the United States and in, in global leadership and global leverage in many parts of the world, Latin America, Africa, and so on. How sophisticated and advanced are their societal penetration efforts, even in many democracies in the United States, and how much uh, we are in danger of losing our practical war-fighting advantage against uh, China in the Asia-Pacific region uh, if we don't plug the hemorrhaging of our technology to China and improve our own technological investments and, frankly, uh, restore some strength to the United States Armed Forces. So let me conclude with this. Uh, are you saying that the U.S. has all the necessary tools? We have the democratic system. We just have to use them properly. Uh, properly, proactively, energetically, 
um, a little bit more optimistically. I think we need to recover some of our self-confidence. And I think in the end, the tools we have, the history we have, the character we have, we have to recover um, our willingness to listen to one another and cross these ideological and partisan lines, both uh, to restore American leadership in the world and to restore functionality, the ability to legislate and invest in America uh, uh, as a result of uh, congressional cooperation. You're in the classroom almost every day. Do your students get it? Do they understand? I think... uh, I am maybe inducing them to think a little bit more beyond their own partisan biases, which were at Stanford University, so you can probably uh, guess what direction they lean in. But yes, um, I think as they reflect on what I'm talking about in the book, I think a great many of them do get it and are very much resolved to get involved, to reform our democracy, and make it a more decent, mutually respectful, and workable democracy. The book just out, it is titled Ill Winds, Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition, and American Complacency. Author and Professor Larry Diamond for an insightful conversation here in Washington, D.C. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you, Steve. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app or wherever you download your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening.